Welcome to Ekunaini, a podcast about South African innovators. I'm Jen Warren. And I'm Pam Sykes. And Ekunaini is the closer word for corner. In South Africa, the street corner is where people hang out, trade stories and watch life unfold. And that's exactly what we hope to share with you. So join us to explore what stirs ordinary people to make a difference in their communities. We'll introduce you to some of Cape Town's local heroes who are changing the world with bravery, innovation, ingenuity and heart. Episode 6 of Ekoneni finds us in a conference room at the University of Cape Town's Graduate School of Business. That's just next door to the V&A waterfront, everyone's favorite tourist trap. Even the locals like it. And we're talking to social tech entrepreneur Dr. William Mappam. I'd love to do a little demo. Yeah. Sure. William is the founder of Vula, a phone app that makes it easy for primary healthcare workers to refer patients to specialists and get quick feedback, even if they're hours away. That's William's phone making the pinging noise, by the way. It will ping a couple more times, so you don't need to check your messages. So it's, yeah, that's the app itself. You can see this is all fake information, fake news. So you won't see any patient details there that are real. South Africa has just 60 doctors for every 100,000 people. That's way lower than the world average of 152 doctors for every 100,000. And so many people who could really benefit from specialist care never get it. And then there are patients who could easily be treated at the primary level, like in public clinics, if only healthcare workers had access to just a little bit of specialist knowledge. So Vula is trying to bridge that gap. So it's new referral, pressing there. Those are different specialties using Vula. William is an eye doctor himself, so that's where Vula started. And here's us getting a guided tour of the app. So then ophthalmology is the original, and then it'll work out who's on call in your area. Hmm. Then you just enter all the information in, and then... Female, okay. Yeah, and then you can do a vision test. And so without ever having or knowing how to do a vision test, it explains everything to you. So I've got to stand two meters from you, and I've got to ask you to close one of your eyes, and close your left eye, so you ask a patient to... You can do it if you like. With your glasses, left, eye, left and right, okay. So then it's a start test. You've probably done the eye test that Pam and William are doing sometime in your life. I remember looking at the e-chart in school and in my pediatrician's office. You remember that chart. It shows an E at different angles, like lying on its back or upside down. And then you use your hand to show what you're seeing as the E's get smaller and smaller. And then, this is called an illiterate E-test. So I can do that too. It doesn't matter if you're a kid or an adult or someone who can't read, you're able to do this test. Mm-hmm. I can see that one. You see, I've done these before. Yeah. Me and ophthalmologists know each other very well. <laughs> How's your vision, Pam? So I had my glasses on here and I could see almost all the way to the smallest E. But in the places that Vula's designed for, people might live with an untreated eye problem for years, ending up with vision so bad they can't even do the first level of this test. So the app includes other tests as well, with some very specific questions to help the specialist decide how the primary healthcare worker either treats on site or refers to hospital. Well, it's a good screening test, but let me show you uh, what happens if you go the other way. So in ophthalmology, if you really want to bring it down to the basic things, you can either not see or it's painful or it looks fine. Mm. The rest is, you know, so is the eye painful? And you can choose the type of pain. Oh, deep or scratchy or okay. Yeah, or how long has had the problem and you can... Okay, nice, amazing. And then does it look funny? Or have you lost vision? Done. Well, say you can't see the first E. And often vision test apps in America would 
start with that. Yeah. That's the lowest you can go. But for us, actually, people often can't see that. Wow. Mm. So there's something called a count fingers test or a hand movement test or a light perception test. That way we actually grade people's vision extensively, okay. uh, which is very important for us as specialists. And that's really quick. Yeah. Say the patient's got a whole bunch of conditions. At this point, I had a brainwave. I have an old toxoplasmosis infection that's left some scarring on my retina. What's toxoplasmosis? Toxoplasmosis is the one you get from cats. <clears throat> Lucky me, I grew up with cats, but I don't have it. Ah, you don't even know. About a third of all humans apparently have it, but it's mostly latent, so you'll never notice. Unless you're pregnant, which you're not, so that's fine. But in my case, for some reason, the little parasites ended up in my retina which means that every now and again if I get sick and my immune system dips, it flares up and I get cloudy vision in that eye. Wow. So we decided to use me as a test case so William could use Vula to take pictures of my eye. Thank you, Pam, our trusty volunteer. Then you get another so photograph. Actually, let's do my toxo. So if I had said, oh, the vision in my right eye is cloudy, how would that... What we can do here, this, as a specialist, you see, you've told me that. Mm. So we've said that you've lost vision in the right eye. Yeah. So I know you've lost vision, but with a photograph, it's just a photograph of the front of the eye, but there is a device you can use to take a photograph of the back of the eye, but you have to add a device onto the phone. Mm. That's very cool. And you can take a photograph. Shall I come around? And then if I can't see anything wrong with it, then I know the problem's at the back of the eye. Wow, what cool technology. Yeah, I mean, it's just a photograph, but the thing is, it's so useful for us as specialists. So then it's as simple as that. I can add comments and say, like, I can't see anything wrong, but the patient says blurry vision or whatever it is. And if I press send, it'll go straight to Mokhtal. I'm not going to do that because she's really on call, <laughs> but I'll save. Because she's actually busy. So what we loved about Vula, and I guess these things are possible now because smartphones are just generally so awesome, was the fact that it includes a whole lot of diagnostic tools like the ability to take a photograph of my retina, that just a few years ago were totally inaccessible at primary healthcare level. The first time I had one of those done of the retina, I had to go to a special place. It was only about 10 years ago. Yeah, they're expensive. Fantastically expensive machine that had to book time, you know. Yeah, there's an algorithm now that can look at the blood vessels at the back of the eye. And one of the major killers for pregnant women is eclampsia. So your blood pressure goes yeah. up and your kidneys fail. And the way they currently test it is they test your urine to see if your kidneys are functioning and they test your blood pressure, which is actually a, quite a big blood vessel. Whereas if you look at the back of the eye, you can detect mm. those changes way before these problems happen. Wow. So my goal really is to get eye care out of the eye clinic and into places like that where you can actually make a, a life-changing difference. So it's diagnostic for many more things than just eyes. Okay, that's uh, interesting. Diabetes, hypertension, so cool. See, Jen's glowing. Yeah. <laughs> There's the on-call, off-duty thing, I mean. So okay. press that, I want to go on-call. Huh. But I'm not going to do that. You're not going to do that, no, because you don't want to be on-call right now. Awesome. So that was us playing with a very cool smartphone app, and it was lots of fun. But the background is deadly serious. To understand why an app like Vula is needed in the first place, we took a few steps back to look at the overall picture of healthcare services in South Africa's less accessible places. I mean, South Africa is a very varied country, but cities like Cape Town and Joburg, but also some very deep rural areas. So one of the hospitals I used to work at was two hours from the nearest pick and pay, and it was an hour and a half round trip to fill up with petrol on dirt roads. Obviously, if it rained, it would take a lot longer. So you're talking a very, very rural community. So many people there hadn't even been to a, a city before. 
and often healthcare services haven't been readily available. And if you tell someone to go and see a specialist, they may not go because it's just too far, they've never been there before, they're not sure what a specialist actually does. And the problem isn't just that patients might struggle to get to the city where they can see a specialist. For many people, the local clinic or the small hospital is really their only access to health services at all. And those are often staffed by junior doctors fresh out of medical school, doing a year of community service. And that means they're often working on their own with very little experience or supervision. And that's a very scary place to be. William did his community service at Madwalani in the rural Eastern Cape. If you can, take a look on Google Maps. It'll give you a good idea of just how remote the hospital is. It's really in the middle of nowhere. And if you're not sure how to spell Madwalani, we've put a screenshot of the map on our Instagram page. So go check it out. Cool. So the services at a rural hospital do vary. The hospital I was at, we had to reinstall a theatre with an anaesthetic machine. And within the time I was there, we managed to start doing caesarean sections again, because otherwise you'd wait up to eight hours for an ambulance. It might be too late for the mother or the child. But we were very short staff, so we used to do the caesarean sections on our own. So you would give the anaesthetic, you would operate, resuscitate the baby, re-scrub, and finish off the surgery. So very, very stressful. And as a junior doctor, luckily we knew we were going to go rural and we kind of prepared ourselves and done extra training, but it's still an incredibly stressful way to, to work. But the services are improving and if you take that particular hospital, we made it part of the teaching program with Stellenbosch and UCT, the University of Cape Town, and that meant there's a constant flow through of students. Then a lot of them ended up working there, so suddenly your hospital's full of doctors. And now they even, they've got specialist family physicians working there and it's part of the training program for that specialty. So. Yeah, it does vary in terms of the amount of services you've got, but it's getting better in many areas. Better in some areas, but not all of them, and healthcare workers in many remote, rural and underserved areas are really struggling. I mean, there are some real gems in rural areas, but often if too many doctors leave a hospital, it can collapse because suddenly you need to be on call every second day and that burns people out quite quickly. Not only in rural areas. No, that's why we say rural, underserved or remote, because you can easily be in Kalicha or Delft or one of the townships near Cape Town, and it can be equally as stressful as working in a deep rural area. So it's a big problem. So that's the picture at the primary healthcare level. At the other end of the system, in the big tertiary and teaching hospitals, like Tigerberg in Cape Town, where William is based now, the pressures are different, but equally intense. So the specialist have to receive referrals, is that right? Sure, so as a referral hospital, you are expected to provide tertiary services to that area. So typically what would happen before is that the community health worker would go onto the clinic landline, they would phone the Tigerberg hospital switchboard, they would wait for the switchboard to get hold of the specialist on call. This is why they're still waiting on the phone. When and if the specialist got that message, they would call the switchboard again and then get connected to the doctor. So you wasted so much time and effort. And then even then, once you get through, the specialist might say to you, well, did you check the vision? Or did you take a photograph? Or did you do this? Yeah, and then you have to start the whole process again. So, Jen, what do you think? Do we have enough of the big picture to be getting on with? Yeah, it's like peeling the layers of an onion. It is, but we're enough, right? Good enough? Yeah, good, yeah. yeah. So let's get back to young William doing his community service at Madwaleni way back in 2005. Where the seeds of Vula were sown. When I was almost fresh out of medical school, a patient came with an eye condition. I knew it needed treatment, but I wasn't 
quite sure what to do. There was no phone line at that stage, so I wasn't able to get hold of a specialist. So I wrote the patient a little letter. So please take this to Mtata, and I'm pretty sure they'll be able to give you the medication you need. It didn't look complicated, but I just wasn't sure. Six years later, I went back there. I'd been training as an eye doctor, and we went there to run an eye clinic, and I was so excited because now I can give back more than what I could do before. So we drove eight hours to the clinic, and there were just young people who wanted sunglasses. There was no concept of eye care. No one had ever had a cataract operation mm. or any kind of proper eye care. So I said to her, well, surely there are old people in the village who are blind. And she said, yes, but they've been blind for years and there's nothing you can do for them. So I said, well, let's, let's have a look. So we walked around the village and we found a couple of people blind with cataracts, but I mean, dense, dense cataracts. So all they could see was light or darkness. So the one gentleman who had been lying in his hut for I think, three or four years, he could see the outline of the door. So he'd go outside, but he had to feel his way around the hut to know where he was. And he had cataracts in both eyes. And he said to him, look, we can operate for you. Would you like us to do that? And he said, not a chance. No one's touching his eyes. He can still see the doorway. But we had a long chat with him and said, look, you've got two eyes. Why don't you have one operated, have a go, and then at least you'll still have the other one. So we managed to negotiate with the Baz bus, which is a tourist bus for backpackers. And he jumped on that with a community health worker, eight hours down to Utenhaeg pretty much a 20-minute operation. And then suddenly, when he was able to walk around the village and see everything again, there was this long queue of people waiting to be seen, including that same patient who came with that letter that I'd written for him to go to Amtata. He'd never been to Amtata. He'd lost the vision in that eye. And when I read the letter and I saw his eye, I realized we actually had the medication needed in our hospital. If I'd just been told by a specialist what to give, we could have actually treated him. So it really hit home that a small amount of specialist knowledge can make a massive difference in a rural area. So what Vula does, it connects people who are in rural and underserved areas like me in the past with people like me in the future who can offer literally a few words of advice and actually change people's lives. So. But William had a long road to travel before he could close the loop with Vula. He got burnt out in the public sector and stepped sideways for a while. He got a look into public health and behavior change using mass media while working at Soul City, then did a fellowship at Columbia looking at tech and mobile phones in particular. Then he worked for a startup in Washington for a while, then he got bored, came back to South Africa, worked for the National AIDS Council, and then everything changed. I actually had a rock climbing accident, absolutely near-death experience. and. One thing that had been lurking in my mind throughout all these years was cataract surgery because I'd seen my first cataract surgery operation as an intern. I thought, wow, that's amazing. I'll get around to it one day. Between all these different jobs, I'd go off to Swaziland to visit Jonathan Pons and learn about what he was doing. Just a quick interruption here with some background. Jonathan Pons runs the Good Shepherd Eye Clinic at Siteki near the border between Swaziland and Mozambique. Also like Madhulani, pretty much in the middle of nowhere. Yep but they see over 16,000 patients a year and do more than a thousand cataract operations a year. How come so many people in this tiny place have so many eye problems? Well, there's two things. First of all, Jonathan Pons for a very long time was the only eye doctor in the whole of Swaziland. So I guess people came from everywhere to see him. And then cataracts are actually really common. Even if we just look at the US, more than half of people over 80 either have a cataract or have had cataract surgery which is really safe and simple to do, but without it, you go blind. Wow. So it's a big deal. Yeah. Anyway, back to William. Back to William. 
And, and after the rock climbing accident, literally when I got down to the ground, I said to my now wife, I'm giving all this up. I want to go and do this cataract operation. It's the last thing I do. I quit my job and went to phone Jono and we thought it would take three months to train me. I'm a bit slow, it took me 10. William wasn't being paid during those months of training, so when his money eventually ran out, he went looking for a job. He ended up running a new eye clinic in Newtonhag near Port Elizabeth, not all that far from Maud Willaney where it all began. It went very, very well, but um, you can't specialize there. It's just a medical officer job. And so eventually started applying for uh, specialization posts and was eventually very fortunate to get one at Tigerberg. I think um, overseas they wouldn't let you operate until you specialized. But in South Africa, you have to do a minimum of 100 cataract operations and pass most of your exams before you even get into your training program. So by the time I even started, I think I'd done over 300 cataract operations alone and a whole bunch of other surgeries. So you go into your training program very well prepared. So it's really like an apprenticeship and then you do the, the theory after you... Yeah, it's the funny way around. So yeah. I mean, I think in some countries in Europe, for example, you'll fully specialize and only then will you specialize in ophthalmic surgery. So I mean, like we're very fortunate to be operating literally from the moment you, you start. So you've worked as a general practitioner within the clinic setting, you've worked at a systems level, you've worked at a sort of public health and behavior change level, you've worked at management level running clinics, you've done the surgery specialist. So how do you think that kind of very multifaceted experience is fed into what you're doing now with Hula? It wasn't always obvious how these things would kind of all fit together. But the fact that I landed up in Swaziland, having had that systems experience, the mobile phone experience from America, and then seeing how deep rural Swaziland was, even compared to South Africa, people really were very poor in Swaziland. Transport was a major, major issue. So the fact that you could have a sort of telemedicine approach with apps and phones makes absolute sense. I think we realized that all the community health workers there had phones. So it wasn't as if you're going to reinvent anything or provide any systems or technology. It was just there waiting for you. So yeah, I guess the idea was in Swaziland, so that's about 2010. At that stage, it was pretty much just a concept. Uh, then I learned more about how to make apps and designed a very sort of basic version where I could demo on my phone. And armed with that demo, William was able to get a flash grant from the Shuttleworth Foundation that helped him get to the next step along the road. When it came to building the software, I mean, how much of that have, have you coded it? Have you hired people to code it? Do you spec it? How does the yeah. easy work difficult has that been? So that was a great learning experience. My father was a computer scientist, so we had a computer at home from very early days program a calculator to do games when you're supposed to be working and things like that at school. I mean, I'd done some very basic coding before, but nothing close to making an app. And it was quite a sort of new thing back then. I had this 50,000 Rand from the Shuttleworth Foundation. I thought that was enough to take over the world. Found all these developers and they just laughed. I said, 50,000 Rand? Like, what, what color button do you want? Red or blue, you know? And so it was like, okay, well, what do I do now? And then I phoned. Um, William found a lot of people. One of them was a software developer who spec'd the full app, and another ran a user experience design company that gave Vula two free months of development time between projects. That's worth about 200,000 Rand, or $14,000. That produced a real live Android demo. That demo won the SAB Innovation Award in 2013. That was a million Rand, so suddenly we had enough money to actually properly make the thing that we had designed. That got launched in 2014, and I thought suddenly everyone would just start using it, which wasn't the case. Integration into systems is not easy. This hadn't happened before. No one was using apps for referrals. This didn't exist. 
So it did take a while to break into Tigerberg and get it implemented in the eye clinic, convince people that it might be useful. We learned a lot, we rejigged the design quite a bit at that stage. And here we are back to the live app. We wanted to know just how Vula actually works in an interaction between a patient and a healthcare worker. How is the information captured and where exactly does it go? There are now 12 specialties on Vula and counting. Ophthalmology was first, but now healthcare workers can refer cases including burns, broken bones, skin lesions and strange lumps and bumps. Each one has a specific form. So for example, ophthalmology has got an eye test on it. Burns asks you to fill in this little character showing where the patient has burned with the photographs and then it works out how you should treat that patient immediately before you even make a referral. So everything's quite specific. So you complete the form and we don't want you to spend more than two minutes doing that. And then you press send. All that information goes to the specialist. Now me as a specialist often would get phone calls in the past saying, I've got a patient here, patient's got a red eye. Uh, I don't know if the patient can see, if it's painful, or what does it look like. So often those patients will just have to come through. But now Vula gives doctors all the information they need to make a quick diagnosis, including photos, test results, and medical history. And nobody has to waste time waiting on the phone because the app includes a chat function. So the nice thing about having chat rather than voice is that it can be asynchronous. A person can send the referral, you know, when they've got a moment, and then as a specialist, I receive the referral, but I can carry on finishing seeing my patient and then reply when I've got a gap. And the average response time is about 15 minutes. So within 15 minutes, you'll get a specialist opinion. So if you ask for a second opinion, can you literally forward that through the app and you know, your senior then gets a ping and can see it right there? Exactly. In the same set of information. Yep. So the whole file, if you like, goes across and then um, that person can reply directly to the primary health worker, but all the chats there are recorded so you can see who wrote what. And then in the background, we've got an online dashboard, so the head of department can actually see everything that's happening in his department, what referrals are coming in, what the doctors are talking about. So it's kind of a clinical oversight, and all that data is available for download for research purposes. So at a sort of a slightly more systemic level, there's a lot of tools built in in the back end to make sure that the ongoing data collection is very useful. Can you talk about how you've branched out into other fields and how do you find those specialists? Do they donate their time to help you design the actual backend for the different specialties? We've never really actively approached specialties. Normally they come to us and then we work with them in the referral form and then they start using it. The first specialty to approach us was orthopedics, one of the busiest departments at Tigerberg. So they saw the potential early on they help design the form and we refine it then to make sure that it's quick and easy to use for the end health workers. Because often the specialists will say, oh, I want all this information. I want to know where the patient was born and the size of their small toes and that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, in case it's useful one day, but if you're filling in a form in a rural clinic and you've got two minutes per patient, you can't do that. So we really have to trim the forms down to absolute bare minimum. So what's clear to me from that is that there's a lot of knowledge embedded in the app. So I'm guessing as an ophthalmologist, you know the questions that you need to have answered to give a diagnosis. A burn specialist has particular questions. So there's clearly a lot of research in designing the little questionnaires yep. for each specialty. But then there's also having the system work so that there is somebody at the other end to take that query and respond to it. So how have you engineered the human elements of this to actually work. Sure. How do you so, find those specialists? Yeah. 
So this is where if you haven't used the public sector health system, it's hard to necessarily understand. No one's paid to use Vula, no one's has to use Vula. But what typically happens is the head of a department would say, yes, they'd like to use Vula for their referrals rather than the switchboard or fax or letters in some cases. And once they made that decision, there's an on-call system on the app. So you can actually refer to anyone, but you're told who's on call. So I think almost 99% of the time choose that person. And the way you swap on calls, if I'm on duty, I'm on call. If I want to hand over to the next person, I can say not on duty, but I have to nominate someone else. So it's pass the parcel effect and you can't ever have no one on call. As a specialist, I can now see exactly what could possibly be coming and maybe even help you treat the patient on site. And that's now happening about 25% of the time. That 25% of cases treated at the primary level is really important because that means more people get treated more quickly and closer to home. And all of that saves money and eases the burden higher up the chain. Often it's simple things, but people think it's an emergency and before that would just be referred. That overwhelms the tertiary centre. It's very interesting to see if it's replicated because it's been 25% in dermatology, 25% in orthopaedics, 25% in ophthalmology. Now we'll learn what it's like. Fascinating. Yeah, we didn't expect that. I mean, like we thought it would all be different. Or... But we've also seen cases where, this is an amazing example, a patient was, had was a boiling water thrown in their eye in Kailiche. And if you don't treat that immediately, the patient could blind even before they get to a tertiary hospital. So the doctor was shown on Vula how to treat it right there and then. Very simple but special technique. And then um, later on, I think it was about a month later, another patient had boiling water thrown in the eyes. A different doctor saw the patient and had done exactly the right thing before referring and just checking that it was okay. So we just investigated, how on earth did you know how to do that? Because we hadn't taught you that. I said, no, no, they, they share the knowledge, they get in ruler in the clinic. We, you know, we caught that in action. I don't think it'll happen too many times, but it's nice to see that kind of thing happening. So one thing that happened when people started using Vula was fewer referrals because there was more knowledge at the primary healthcare level. And then the nature of the referrals started to change. Let's take a real example. There's a nurse in Friedendahl, which is eight hours north of Cape Town or something like that. Initially, she started sending a lot of referrals because suddenly there was access to a specialist which she never really had before. Then they tailed off. And I actually phoned her because she was such a good user in the beginning and then nothing happened. So I wonder if she had moved on or whatever. And she, no, no, she knows how to manage those cases now. <laughs> so those weren't even being referred. And then the cases started up again, but they were complicated cases. She was seeing things that she hadn't even spotted before because now she had a bit more knowledge about eyes. And she ended up doing a diploma in ophthalmology and won uh, ophthalmic nurse of the year. I think she's really upskilled. Now there's an eye clinic in Friedendahl. So... It's amazing seeing the knowledge kind of inspiring people to do extra things. To find their niche and their passion. Yeah. The primary health workers actually love this the most because they get teaching, they're learning about patients, they can deliver a better service to their patients. So this is an app which is clearly filling in a really vital gap in healthcare referrals in underserved areas. But that's not a place where there's a lot of money. So how is the app going to sustain itself financially going forward? I mean, I hate asking, no, sure. using the word business model, but because yeah, yeah. it's not that kind of space, but it is. Well, Vula is a business, yeah. but we haven't solved the business model completely. We pretty much funded completely on prize money that we've won. We've had a couple of investors. We never wanted to have any patients paying anything for the service, no health worker paying and no specialists themselves paying. So. We've been speaking to the National Department of Health and what they've done is they've put us in touch with some big funders, foundations, health foundations, and maybe they will pay for a national rollout. 
and people have recognized that businesses can do the work that NGOs typically did before. But I think the big difference is with a business, if you get some cash, you can eke it out for as long as you can and you're very, very frugal. So that's another reason why we made it a, a business, to keep it efficient. What do you think is it about Vula that has made it succeed where so many other mHealth attempts have failed? Well, I think we've also failed in some regards because no one's paying for it. I think if you look at a lot of mHealth projects, typically they tend to be funded by an overseas donor or a government or a research project, forced on someone, and then they write it up and often the funding ends there. We focused on what it actually did and making it very, very useful people using it every day and more of an iterative process rather than designing something in a different place and forcing it on a local environment. Can you talk about where South Africa is in the path of nationalized electronic medical records and if it's yet in a place where if a patient is referred via Vula that all of the information gets attached to their existing or their new electronic medical record. South Africa is quite interesting because all the different provinces are run quite separately. So if you take the Western Cape, for example, there we write our notes on paper. They get scanned into a PDF format, which we can then access online. But if you take the Transkei, for example, more rural areas, in a way the system is more practical because every patient has a little exercise book and whatever happens to them is written in there. So we call that patient-held record system. But it actually works very well, and people protect those little books as if it's their ID. That patient who I'd seen six years before still had that book with him. And it's just amazing that those things last. So that's kind of the extremes. In terms of Vula, we have been asked to quote for integration into the Western Cape Health System. And they've got their own electronic medical system that they're building, and there's potential for Vula data just to be integrated in there. But any form of data integration is complex, so... Okay. How about our question that we always ask? The question that we always ask. What makes you an innovator? It's a hard question yeah. for everybody. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I see myself as an innovator, actually. I just think I want to improve health care for people in rural and remote areas. So you do what that takes. I mean, you can call it innovation, but... Sometimes just doing what's needed. <laughs> I think that's kind of as simple as that, really. What you might start seeing is more innovation happening, driven by people who are on the field, not by a tech company or a health organization that kind of marches into hospital. You'll see doctors designing things that they need. There's a beautiful concept from science studies of the heterogeneous engineer, which I've always loved because it says when you're making a new thing, whatever it is, you don't only have to engineer the physical components or the software components. There's a lot of people engineering and there's some getting around systems of bureaucracies and legal issues. And I think this is a really nice case study of that. So you've had to sort of work at multiple levels. Yeah, tech's actually the easy part. You can program anything if you've got enough money. But convincing people that a new thing is worth trying is always hard. If you were to advise somebody trying to do a similar thing of introducing a new technique into an environment, what's the little tricks and tips? For a new system? Yeah, for behavior change. You've got a foot in the door somewhere. You need to start with something. Don't wait for the money or wait for permission from the Minister of Health to implement something in your lowly little clinic. Give something a bash and learn and build as you go. I think one important thing is to definitely think of the business model, which I never did initially. We're very fortunate to get all this cash in, which enabled us to carry on running. But I think, yeah, I think about the long-term sustainability from the start. 
And then find some trusted people in the community, whatever that might be, whether it's the head of the department in Tigerberg or the head of a local clinic or hospital exactly. in a rural area, get them on your side, and then you can start changing the norms or the acceptance level. So that's a very, very good point because none of this would have been possible unless I'd had kind of overwhelming support from my head of department. He actually organized uh, that I had six months unpaid leave from both the hospital and six months away from my academic time to focus on this full time. And if he hadn't done that, I'm not sure if we'd ever been able to push it hard enough to get going. I don't think we would have got this far without that. It's the quality of the team that's really coming through here. Yeah, I've been very fortunate to work with incredible people. So you've, you've been innovating this whole time. I don't think many innovators know that that's actually what's happening. Like you said earlier, you're just doing something. You have a passion, you see a gap, and you figure out a solution. You just got to do what you enjoy. And I think it took me a long time to realize that. So at med school, I'm trying to fit myself into this box. And if it's not who you are, you have to accept that at some stage and just do the thing that you wanted to do, whatever that is. I think so it's not really innovation, it's being yourself, I think. Amazing. So that was actually quite overwhelming. It's a lot of information. And a very big system to try and change. Indeed. But you know what's nice is you can change a big system with a little thing. And what I like about what William has done is he's taking all of these various interests that he has throughout his life, his career, and he's just putting it all together into this very unique skill set that is really making a difference in people's yeah. lives. Because he's always been learning, right? Always be learning. Mm. Yeah, no learning is ever lost. And it can take a lifetime just to learn to be yourself. But luckily it's never too late to start. Never too late. Awesome. Thank you, Jen. Thank you, Penny. And thank you all for listening. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your feedback. So if there's something you really loved about this show, something we could do better, or you have a suggestion for somebody we should interview, please let us know. Yes. And please visit our Facebook page, Ekinani Podcast, or email us at ekinanipodcast at gmail.com. And leave a review. We have one review we so far. We have one review. Thank you, anonymous reviewer. Local is Lekka. Thank you, local is Lekka. Thank you very much. We love you too. Done. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>